Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Professor Robert Young, who is at the University of Salford at the School of Science, Engineering and Environment, and is also the chair in wildlife conservation. His areas of research are many, among those wildlife conservation, animal welfare, animal behavior, working in zoos, and also anthropogenic impacts. Welcome, Rob. Hello, thank you. Thank you for inviting me today. Absolutely. So delighted to have you on the podcast. And obviously for a lot of people working in zoos and aquariums, but also farm and other welfare areas, your research and of course your very well-known book on captive uh, environmental enrichment for captive animals is very known. But for those listening that haven't heard of your work yet in the very many domains, can you do a short introduction to yourself? Wow. Okay. I can try. Um, so I, I originally did a degree in biology, University of Nottingham, and there I did field work on birds and I did laboratory work on fish. And that's where I was actually first introduced to animal welfare as a subject. I then did a PhD on farm animals, on pigs and their need for foraging behavior at the University of Edinburgh. I graduated in 93. From there, I worked at Edinburgh Zoo for four years as the research coordinator, where I got a lot of experience working with zoo animals. Then I went into academia, uh, first working at the University of De Montfort. And then in early 2000, I moved to Brazil. Uh, I have a Brazilian wife, so I had an opportunity to move to Brazil. So I moved to Brazil and worked there until 2013, doing a mixture of wildlife and captive studies. And then 2013, I moved back to the UK. Um, as you say, you know, I've done very diverse things. Uh, I've actually worked out, I've studied more than 50 different species. I've published more than 130 scientific papers. I've studied everything from crickets to primates and just about everything in between. Absolutely wonderful. I mean, we'll probably, we could do a whole podcast series with all those uh, different species and papers. Can you talk a little bit more also about, like you mentioned, you studied foraging behavior in pigs, some of your, you know, the presentations that I've seen, you've had some wonderful photos um, and explanations about, you know, perhaps enriching activities or changing some aspects in the environment. What are some of the needs uh, that you found when it came to studying pigs? Okay. so. Um... It's quite uh, a funny little story how I came to study pigs because when I was finishing my undergraduate degree, I was actually offered four different PhDs on everything from fish to ants to salmon and pigs was one of them. And I'd actually been in a workshop at the University of Nottingham run by Christine Nicholl, who was then just doing a postdoc. Uh, many people will know her name in the field of animal welfare, just doing a postdoc with Marion Stamp Dawkins. And I decided to go into animal welfare as it seemed to be a good application of the kind of work of animal behavior. Um, and pigs, because they're highly intelligent animals, 
Uh, I'd always been impressed by their intelligence. And yet I was quite shocked by the way that we keep them. And it was quite interesting early on in my PhD, my supervisor, Alistair Lawrence, very keen on measuring welfare problems and quantifying welfare problems. And I was, I one day said to Alistair, I said, look, Alistair, if I go to the doctor and all he ever does is measure my blood pressure and take some blood samples and tells me that I'm not very well and never comes up for a solution to why I'm not very well, then it's not very useful. So we had a bit of a, not a disagreement, but we had a kind of different approaches to um, animal welfare. He was very much of the school of measuring things. And I thought that, you know, we should go beyond just measuring the well-being of animals and actually look at trying to solve some of their problems. And so that's how I got into environmental enrichment, because I didn't want to just go down this line of measuring and saying, oh, these animals are really badly off. You know, I wanted to actually try and do something about it because it just didn't seem very useful way of spending my PhD just measuring a problem. Yes, and I think also for me, when I got to know you and reading your work and seeing all the examples, that was something that really stood out is like not only identifying what are some of the problems that animals have because of the environments that they're in, but then how can we solve them? So can you share maybe a little bit more about what type of enriching activities or different aspects um, you did with the pigs for making changes or solving some of their problems? Yeah, so with the pigs, at the time I was working on the pigs, so this is going back in late 1980s, early 1990s, there was a law coming in in the UK which was going to change pig housing to group housing. So pigs was going to stop being kept in, in stalls and they were going to be given more space. But I realised that just giving them space wasn't going to be enough to you know massively improve their well-being. And pigs in the wild spend a very large amount of time foraging so what I thought would be a positive, and the other thing I forgot to say is in captivity, farm pigs are highly food restricted because they're selected for very high growth rates. So basically they get to eat about a third of what they would want to eat. So they're pretty much hungry all the time. Now, actually, wild pigs are often hungry for very long periods of time. So wild boar in the south of France, for example, can lose up to 30% of their body weight over winter. So that tells us that they're, you know, very highly food restricted. So they must have mechanisms to cope with this. And, you know, one of the obvious mechanisms would be to forage and look for food. So I decided to focus for that reason on foraging behavior. And then I start to think about, well, what do pigs do when they forage? Well, they walk and they sniff and they root. And then I thought about how do they find their food? Well, they don't know when, where or how much food they're going to find. So once I defined these characteristics, I was then able to design a foraging device called the Edinburgh um, Food Ball, which actually allowed pigs to replicate these aspects of their natural foraging behavior but in a captive environment and something that would, you know, keep them occupied foraging for long periods of the day. Yes, wonderful. And we're going to come back to this whole idea or, you know, approach of learning from the wild. And, and you and I did a wonderful seminar hosted by Chester Zoo. Um, I think it's four years, five years ago now on that specific topic. Um, but before we go there, because, you know, you have done so many things over decades and you talked about working, of course, in 
Edinburgh in Scotland on your PhD, and then you moved to Brazil. So what are some of the, you know, the work, the projects that you have worked on when you were living in Brazil? So I worked on many different projects in Brazil. So, you know, being a, a zoologist, it's like a sweetie shop, you know, there's just so many different things to do in Brazil. I mean, it was always a childhood dream to go and work in Brazil. Ever since I'd watched, you know, the David Attenborough documentaries as a child, I'd always wanted to go and live and work in a country like Brazil because so many fantastic opportunities to study so many amazing animals. So, you know, we did a very long-term study on Maine wolves, um, which was really interesting, a very elusive, very unknown species. Um, we also set up a long-term study on titi monkeys. And this study had been going first through myself and then carried on by Christiane Cazin um, for nearly 20 years. And then very sadly, the last time I was in Brazil last year, um, our monkeys that we'd been following for 20 years had died of yellow fever, you know, so um, that was quite sad. But in Brazil, I also did a lot of work with zoos, particularly interested in... Um, preparing animals for reintroduction. So it's all very well and good, you know, that we do reforestation, you know, bring back habitats and things like that, but we've got to have animals to put back in those habitats and those animals have got to have survival skills. So we did a lot of work looking at that and we're still doing a lot of work and looking at how to teach animals to avoid their predators or to find food and things like that. So, did a whole host of different studies, really, as I say. And then one of the areas I became interested in uh, more recently was the effects of sound pollution. And this kind of happened by accident. We were studying the titi monkeys. The titi monkeys do a lot of vocal communication and they have loud um, calls, which they use at the beginning of the day to each group can identify where it is so the groups can avoid each other in the wild. And one of my students who was working with me, she said, oh, Rob, you know, there's a place I'm working. She was doing some consultancy work where the titi monkeys don't vocalize. And I said, well, that's weird. Why don't they vocalize? She said, oh, well, because it's a mining site. There's a mine nearby and they don't vocalize because they can't hear each other because of the mine. So that made me really interested in, you know, the impacts of activities like mining and noise on animals. So then I started a whole line of research investigating how this actually impacts on their behavior and also if you think about it sound if it's chronic um, sound pollution can also be a stressor to animals so that's how that kind of line of research got started up you know this is just one of kind of many different lines of research that have been involved in that line of research is actually still going on to this day yes that's absolutely fascinating and and so important that you know, you and others are working on, for example, these various impacts that animals have in the wild. And, and we're going to come back to that also later with regards to, you know, how zoos, aquariums and conservation organizations, universities are all working together. <laughs> you mentioned, you know, like a sweetie shop, there's like, you know, and everybody, of course, adores uh, Sir David Attenborough. But, you know, so many species, wonderful habitats to study. Can you talk a little bit more about your main wolf project? What are some of the things that you studied or that you found out? And, uh, and perhaps also uh, maybe some of these nuggets, how does that apply to main wolves um, in zoos? 
Okay, so the main dwarf, I mean, there would have been one major study before, which had been a study done by Dietz back in the 1970s in a park called Sehad um, du Canastra using um, radio collar technology, um, which is very primitive technology. And actually, he did a very long term study, which was a classic in its day, but using, you know, of course, in that time in the 70s, very limited technology. So we decided that we were going to use the latest technology, which was satellite collars with GPS in them. So that would give us much more reliable data, allow us to collect much uh, more data without having to be in the field all the time. Um, you know, because you can't really follow these animals. They're very quick. They can move vast distances. They can move 20 or 30 kilometers a day. Their home ranges are vast. They're 120 square kilometer home ranges. So the only real way for us for to study them was really through capturing them and putting GPS collars on them. And actually capturing them was quite fun because initially, you know, you have your trap and you think, oh, what should we put in the trap? Oh, let's put in chicken. Nothing. Uh, on one occasion, we did catch a puma, which was a bit of fun to let it go again. But, you know, we weren't catching the main wolves. And then somebody said roast chicken. And I said, come on, how does a main wolf know what a roast chicken is? And some said, believe me, roast chicken. And sure enough, we put in roast chicken and we caught, we started to catch the main wolves. So I thought that was quite funny. You know, you think, where did they get this knowledge of what roast chicken is? It seems everything loves roast chicken. So once we caught them, we're then able through the collars to actually monitor their movements. And so we could look at their habitat use. And so main wolves are often seen in forested areas, but in fact, they're seen there um, half of what you would expect in relation to what the habitat is. So people thought that they required forest, but actually they don't because all they're actually doing in a forested area is moving from a savanna area through a bit of forest into another savanna area. So it actually is just a barrier to them. So it kind of dispelled that thing, you know, studies that said, oh, Maine wolves spend about a third of their time in forested areas. But people hadn't really looked what they were doing, which is just moving, which is what we were able to show. They weren't actually foraging and doing these kind of things in them. So kind of dispelling that myth. Um, Dietz's study suggested that Maine wolves only came together um, for the breeding season. And actually what we show is that they actually stay together the whole year round. Very interestingly, they sleep together during the day and then at night they separate and forage at least a kilometre apart. Because these are animals which are going through the undergrowth looking for birds and rats, small rodents, then obviously they don't want to be disturbing each other. So that's why they forage in this very separated way. And then in terms of zoos, one of the other interesting things we found was that the males babysit. So... Um, so rather than the males bringing food to the females and her pups um, when, you know, they're very young, the actual males just take their turns in actually babysitting, which is interesting because um, kind of zoo conventional wisdom with maned wolves was to remove the males when the pups were actually born. When in fact, we can see that from the wild that the males actually have an important role to play. And as I've already mentioned, you know, we know that the males stay with the female and the pups all year round. So that's a kind of inappropriate management procedure that was being used by quite a lot of zoos in the past. That's so important information. And as you say, it's so important also that, you know, zoos 
take that information and then change, like you say, their inappropriate uh, management practices, like so many have done. So, and it's so interesting to then take all these nuggets and, you know, amend how we keep them, the environment they're in, their social structure. So wonderful information from studying animals in the wild and taking that knowledge to making management and care for main wolves in, you know, zoos better. And you mentioned you were also studying the titi monkeys. And, and I assume these were the same monkeys that unfortunately died of yellow fever. Um, and can you talk a little bit about what you studied there? What did you find apart from the vocalizations that they didn't do anymore in certain well, areas? Yeah. So the titi monkeys that we were studying, um, Christiane Kazar, um, did a very nice study for her PhD looking at what we call the quiet vocalizations. And so these are vocalizations given between group members, they're not to talk to other groups. And often they're given in the context of when one sees a predator. So she was able to show that actually TT monkeys have referential communication. So for example, um, when a TT monkey sees a bird predator, it'll shout bird to the group well it doesn't shout but it will say bird to the group or if they see a ground predator they'll say ground predator and that generates a different response because obviously the way you respond to a ground predator is different to a bird predator flying above you and if we moved by using um, models the position so we had a ground predator up in the tree or bird predator down on the ground then the other interesting thing was they were actually able to say that there was a ground predator high or a bird predator low. So they're actually able to indicate the direction that the predators were coming from. So, you know, this was one of the first studies looking at referential communication in new world primates. So that was, you know, very interesting. There are lots of things that you happen in studies that you don't expect. So because we studied them for a very long period of time, over the years, we kept finding infants in the wrong group. So an infant would be born in one group and then a few weeks later, we'd find it in another group. And we thought that these cases of adoption were occurring by you know, a simple process that maybe an infant fell off its father because in TT monkeys, it's the fathers that carry them and got lost in the forest. And then a neighboring group found it, picked it up and then reared it. But actually over the years, what we saw was actually they were kidnapping each other's infants and we believe the reason they were doing this is probably to increase their group size because the loud vocalizations they use is to defend a food resource like a tree, fruiting or something like that. Um, I have got DNA from all these individuals and we did initially do some attempts at you know, extract, well, DNA. I've got feces to extract DNA from. And initially we've tried to get DNA from the feces a few years ago and it didn't work very well, but I'm hopeful now with new kits, we'll be able to get out the DNA a reasonable quality so we can look at what's going on with these particular individuals. And we had six cases over the period of the study. I suspect that the kidnapped individuals are also probably nieces and nephews of the kidnappers. So I think there's probably some interesting things going on there as well. So, you know, they're, they're a very interesting group. And then more latterly, we've been looking at their color vision because they have very complex color vision. They have about um, eight different types of color vision. Um, many people might not know this, but in new world primates, uh, all the males are colorblind, 
then a certain proportion of the females are colorblind. And probably in TT monkeys, it's probably only about 15% of the females are colorblind. And that's because they have a high rate of polymorphisms for their genes for the different um, opsins. The opsins are the proteins in your eyes, which detect the different colors. So, you know, they're really fascinating species to actually look at. That is fascinating. And some of that I didn't know. So I'm curious, of course, to find out more about that. And also, what are some of the practical applications like in some of our training related talks or papers we talk about, of course, knowing, you know, what colors do animals see or in what shades do they see? Uh, and, you know, how that, of course, is relevant when you're doing colored targets and, you know, other aspects. So it would be really fascinating to hear more about that. I don't know if you have some examples or some practical uh, nuggets for takeaway to consider for when people are working with these species. Well, I mean, the one example I know is I remember Hannah Buchanan-Smith telling me she was at a conference where somebody was working with New World primates and they expressed their kind of concern that only the females were able to solve a certain task. And Hannah pointed out that she was asking them to separate red and green, which is the most common form of colorblindness, and none of the males would be able to do this anyway because of the kind of, you know, um, lacking the gene to actually, because they're dichromats, so they can't separate out those differences. So, you know, there is a kind of practical application there. And also, I think what we have to remember is that although we might see color blindness as a, a problem, because humans tend to look at it that way, you know, it's often cited to be the most common human genetic problem is color blindness because it's 8% of human males, half a percent of human females. Actually, it has a function. It appears that, you know, colorblind individuals are better at certain tasks, such as detecting, um, uh, camouflaged individuals or um, their vision works better in lower light so it might be that you know there are applications and certainly we have evidence in the tt monkeys that at different times of days the males and females are at different heights in the forest which seems to correspond with when their visual systems would be working better yes absolutely fascinating i do remember the the task indeed and that's often brought up in training so definitely a topic to dive further into and find out more and before we move to like more welfare related questions and care and welfare assessments it was fascinating to hear you talk about preparing animals for reintroduction because of course many zoos and other facilities have animals that might be reintroduced at some point or are being reintroduced uh, or are being um, bred for reintroduction programs specifically. And there are many things that animals, of course, need to be able to do uh, to be successful in the wild. And can you talk a little bit about some of the things that you have done um, in your work when you're preparing animals for reintroductions? Which species, what were some of your tactics and, uh, and perhaps some success stories? Yeah, so we've worked with fish, we've worked with amphibians, we've worked with birds. Uh, most recently, we've been working with peccaries. Um, so all of these animals, the, f the first obvious thing that we do is see whether they've recognized a predator. Um, do they actually recognize a predator as a predator or do they just recognize it as something strange they haven't seen before? 
And a lot of animals bred for many generations in captivity has suffered what we call relaxed selection. So they haven't had the forces of natural selection operating on them because they've not been exposed to predators. So they no longer react appropriately to predators. So if we find that they no longer react appropriately to predators, then what we normally do is we'll train back um, predator awareness into the animals. So the way we train back predator awareness into the animals is that we show them a predator. Often the way we do this is using a model. So a taxidermized model of a predator that we borrow from a museum. And then we associate that with an aversive stimulus, which will evoke a natural anti-predator response. So our first study was with greater rear, these large flightless South American birds. And so we would show them a model of a jaguar and then we would have somebody um, dressed up so that you couldn't see it was a human being, chase them around their enclosure for 30 seconds without capturing them or hurt them, then quickly show them the model of the jaguar again. And so that they would learn that when they see a jaguar, that they need to emit their anti-predator response, which is to run away. And after only three sessions of doing this, the birds learned as soon as they saw the jaguar that it was time to run away. And that's a very simple, basic protocol, but we've been able to use that with fish, amphibians, um, and even peccaries. And, you know, it's been successful with all those different um, species. Wonderful. Can you talk a little bit about the human aspect of that? Where people, I can imagine, you know, we often also in zoos and aquariums, we talk about the importance of behavioral, you know, maintaining behavioral diversity and, you know, exposing animals to all kinds of stressors, positive and negatives. But sometimes we don't necessarily feel comfortable with perhaps, you know, having animals work very hard or having to do with things that we, we rather, you know, we want them to just be happy and, you know, positive states all the time. So I can imagine if you have to, you know, maybe scare the rhea or do other things, what were some of the people experiences uh, having to do those types of things? So I think that, you know, um, in Brazil, it was very widely accepted that this was necessary for reintroduction because people saw it as unethical to be reintroducing these animals without giving them a chance to survive. I think here in the UK, for example, it's very difficult with the animal welfare laws that we have maybe to do these kind of things. And certainly, you know, I think the zoos here would be quite reluctant to do these things. I think you've kind of hit your, you know, the nail on the head when you talk about not wanting to stress the animals and keep them happy all the time. You know, it's a bit like we're keeping animals in zoos in Western Europe and maybe other places, a bit like Buddha in his palace. You know, Buddha, you probably know the story that Buddha, he was kept in this palace. His mother died when he was seven days old and his father wanted him not exposed to any of the hardships of the world. So he never saw old people. He never saw sick people. He never saw poverty, hunger, you know. And so he lived this kind of very artificial life with no stresses and no strains. And then at the age of 29, he first went out of the palace and he saw the reality of the world and was absolutely shocked by it. And, you know, I sometimes think, aren't we keeping zoo animals like a young Buddha? And is that really in their best interest? Yes, I think you're absolutely right. I think, you know, the 
whether it's Graeme Law's talks, you know, about, uh, I remember at the first environmental enrichment conference I went to in Edinburgh, um, he already talked about, you know, exposing animals to all kinds of, you know, perhaps flying kites or other, you know, having to pay attention socially or, you know, interact and engage in behaviors that are specific to, you know, a species and papers, you know, uh, on maintaining behavioral diversity, but there's, yeah, there's a big reluctance, even for getting animals to work very hard physically uh, and having to, you know, perhaps find out how a puzzle works, or we tend to want to jump in often very quickly in, you know, making everything comfortable, making everything easy, and, um, and not necessarily working on, you know, all the diversity of behavior, the resilience, you know, the plasticity of behavior. So I think you're, you're actually, I, I really like your Buddha um, story because, yeah, it's true. It, it very much resembles that. And it also makes me think of, of Tim Sullivan, a wonderful animal trainer curator at the Brookfield Zoo often talks about crystal okapis, you know, where we're just having to, we're so careful, you know, that nothing happens that sometimes because of the way that we behave and organize everything, uh, we're actually not, you know, serving the animals in her or his best interest. So, yeah, thank you for that, uh, for that Buddha story. Uh, That's very interesting uh, to look at it that way. And yeah, so I mean, obviously, there's so many things to learn from the wild, and and we're gonna definitely come back to that. But let's let's come back also to why you were interested to study animal behavior and welfare. You already mentioned, um, of course, learning about them and solving their problems. Can you talk a little bit more about you know how did you actually get into that field of studying behavior and welfare? Because there's Many people listening, um, either animal care professionals, but also students and others who are really, you know, keen to learn about that career. Right. Okay. Yeah. I mean, from, you know, my own background, I was brought up in an Irish Scottish fishing family. So I've brought up with tales of fish and dolphins and whales all my life. I remember one story really impressing me from my dad who told me that one time my grandfather caught a whale, I think it was a, a pilot whale in his nets, and that he cut the nets because he couldn't have the death of the whale on his conscience. Now, those fishing nets in modern day money would cost tens of thousands of pounds. But, you know, my grandfather would rather suffer that loss than have the whale, you know, on his conscience. So I was always brought up in a family, you know, where that kind of, you know, interesting respect was, you know, you can see the conflict there because my grandfather was happily catching millions of fish, but certain animals, you know, he was very respectful of and concerned about their kind of well-being. So I was always in a family which talked about these kind of things. Um, so I was brought up with that. That's why I went in to do biology. As I say, in my final year in biology, we had a series of workshops with external speakers. And one of them was Christine Nichol. Um, and Christine Nichol talked about animal welfare, and particularly zoo animal welfare. And this was something I thought would be, you know, a very useful application of, you know, my degree. So that's why I went into zoo animal welfare. When I was doing my work on zoo animal welfare, I already mentioned the one thing was I didn't want to just measure a problem. I've always believed we should be proactive and we should avoid problems. And so a proactive approach rather than a reactive approach, which is one of the things that I saw. And at this point in time, when I was doing my PhD, I happened to meet Graham Law, who you already mentioned. And Graham was doing a lot of environmental enrichment work. 
And I saw that as being very proactive about animal welfare rather than reactive. What I could see at that point in time was that farm animal welfare was very reactive and it seemed to be very driven by academic papers and not so much about making real world changes. So that's what led me to work at Edinburgh Zoo because I wanted to work somewhere where we can make real changes in the day-to-day -day lives of the animal. So, so I kind of moved over through my experience and by um, volunteering my time, supervising students at the zoo and things like that to a point where there was a job came up and I was able to work there. And I worked there for, you know, four years. And after four years, I decided to move to academia um, for a number of reasons, which, you know, it's too long to go into um, today, but um, because I saw academia as somewhere where I could carry on doing research, but also passing on my knowledge. And so working maybe in a kind of very similar way, but in a different way as well. And then really the great thing, as I say, is I got this opportunity, which had always been a dream to get to work in with wild animals. And so my wife actually worked at the Belle Horizonte Zoo. So I was able to carry on with zoo work and I was able to start doing work on wild animals when I got a job at a university in Brazil in a zoology department. So that's how I developed my career. But I think, you know, the important thing that I've learned throughout my career is always to collaborate and cooperate with people and, you know, always look for where there are good opportunities to work with people on interesting projects. Yes, that is so true and it's so important because we all have our own expertise and interests that all together we can really, you know, get all those pieces of the puzzle by collaborating. And of course, you know, having a job, you know, working in a zoo and working in the wild, that's absolutely, you know, a dream, I think, of everybody uh, who is interested in, in wild animals in one way or another. And and I really, you know, I think I I really want to stress, highlight and echo this importance of proactive and really, you know, actively, you know, thinking about how do animals live? What is it that they need uh, instead of, you know, reactive, which, you know, often um, already, you know, creates a lot of other problems for having to fix things that we didn't necessarily think through uh, from the beginning. So this whole proactive uh, aspect is so important, as you mentioned. Now, there will be a lot of people who say, you know, you can't really study or research animals in zoos or aquariums or, or in captivity in general, for that matter. And can you, would you be happy talking uh, about that a little bit about, you know, this, this topic about, you know, not being able to say anything sensible about studying animals in zoos? Sure. So obviously there are certain types of studies which can only meaningfully be done in the wild. So or it's certain things you would only find out in the wild. So like the kidnapping I was talking about by the titi monkeys, we'd never probably ever see this in a zoo environment because, you know, we haven't got many um, groups all together in a large enclosure with the different territories. So we'd never see that. However, there are many behaviours which to understand them it's only really feasible to do in captivity. So a very good example is marking behavior by maned wolves. So maned wolves in the wild usually defecate on, on top of a rock. Now, in the wild, we believe that this is because they're marking their territory. But how am I going to prove this? I don't know where they're going to defecate. I don't know when another maned wolf is going to come up. 
So, you know, it's very difficult for me. I'm not going to sit there for, you know, um, four weeks looking at a piece of main wolf poo, hoping another main wolf comes up to see what its response is. So, but what I can do in captivity is I can take poo from a known main wolf and put it into another main wolf's enclosure or an unknown main wolf and put it in another main wolf's enclosure. And I can manipulate the situations and I can look at their responses and I can confirm whether they respond in a way that's you know suggestive that they're using this as a territorial marker, whether they treat neighbors that they know as dear enemies compared to a stranger. So I'm able to find out all these things in captivity, which would just be impossible for me to find out in a reasonable time frame in the wild. So I think there are many things that in captivity where, you know, it's the only way really we're actually going to be able to find out the answers to some of these questions. Yes. And I think, you know, your keyword there is also meaningfully. And the other aspect that I really, you know, agree with is also like, what is it that we're trying to find out? Because of course, when we are studying animals in captivity, then we want to also understand how they are faring, assessing their well-being, you know, making sure that they're well in that particular environment. And that is a study, right, uh, in itself. And then, of course, also the importance of looking at what is it that we can take from these studies that potentially have been done in captivity or methods that have been developed or technologies that have been developed on captive animals that then have been beneficial also to studying animals in the wild or treating animals in the wild, like some of the portable anesthesia kits and some of these other examples. So, and I think, yeah, your study both in, in zoos and in captivity have really shown that, as you say, that collaborate effort, you know, with universities, with all kinds of other people and organizations, really, how do we protect animals, care for animals in, in the wild, as well as, of course, in zoos and aquariums. And as we're talking about, you know, animal welfare, in itself as a study. So how, from the perspective on the, the individual, how is that animal doing? How is she or he feeling about, you know, where she is with who she is? Can you talk a little bit about, you know, the importance and the differences of care versus welfare and the inputs versus outcomes? Right, okay, yeah, sure. Um, I mean, I think, you know, before that, the first thing to remember is that you know, the welfare of any individual will go up and down across the day and will go up and down across its lifetime. And that is actually totally normal. And so, you know, I always have this problem where people say, oh, the welfare of animal, of our animals is always high. And, you know, I would say, well, you're lying because the welfare of no animal, no individual is always high. There are always points in the day where maybe you're hungry or you're a bit frustrated or whatever, where your welfare might go down a little bit. And across your life, you know, there will be points where, you know, your welfare might go down. An animal uh, might be the firstborn and then its mother has another individual, another offspring, and it gets less attention. So its welfare goes down a bit because its little brother or sister is now getting all of mum's attention. You know, these are all kind of natural processes. So I think, you know, one of the things that we should not be afraid of is welfare fluctuating up and down, providing overall the animal's welfare is very good. 
So I think that this is one of you know the very important things that we need to focus on. So we shouldn't be getting alarmed at you know fluctuations up and down in welfare, providing overall you know the animal has got a good quality of life. I think for me that's the kind of critical thing. The problem with, um, as we all know, measuring animal welfare is it's very individual. And so what one individual might like, another individual might find aversive. And so we can look at, you know, inputs. So um, which could be like, you know, the arrival of a keeper. Some animal individuals naturally might be quite bold. And so they really like the arrival of a keeper. Other individuals are naturally very timid and they find that quite stressful. So you've got an input there, you know, a keeper arriving at an enclosure. For some individuals in the enclosure, it could be positive. For other individuals, it could be negative. So in terms of outputs, you know, some individuals might show excitement that, you know, this is something very positive and stimulating for them. And other individuals might go and hide away or even perform some abnormal behavior just because of their kind of individual differences. So I think, you know, one thing that people try and do a little bit is try to generalize too much without thinking enough about, you know, the individual's characteristics and, you know, the factors which might influence those individual's characteristics. So, um, animal welfare is not an easy subject by any means to study, but that doesn't mean that it's impossible. I think it just means we need to have all these kind of things at the back of our uh, mind when we're actually looking at, you know, the inputs and outputs and remembering how different individuals experiencing the same thing might have very different interpretations. And that's going to come through in the outputs that we actually see. Yes, absolutely. And it's so important to separate those out, as you say, you know, what are the things that we provide, all the care, all the efforts, and then, you know, how are the animals experiencing this? And, you know, and the same, of course, is also for people like, you know, throughout this podcast, you know, especially in this age, we're thinking, oh, I hope the Wi-Fi stays on and, you know, all those types of things, things fluctuate all the time and it might be for various reasons. And not all of it, even though there might be some of these negative stressors, as long as animals can cope with those, can deal with them and have some agency, some choice and control over them also, that will make, of course, a, a massive difference to, you know, how things are perceived. But that, as you say, you know, the individual, that they're all different and how do we make sure, you know, that we look at those individual differences. So, you know, you already mentioned you've studied, you know, over 50 uh, species from crickets to, you know, maned wolves. Um, can you give some examples of, you know, what type of uh, studies you have done in zoos um, and uh, perhaps, you know, what or, or what you have taken from some of your studies in the wild into zoos and study there as well? Yeah, I mean some of the more recent studies we've been looking at um, with Louisa Passos, one of my former PhD students, she's now a lecturer at the Liverpool John Moores University. Her PhD was looking at how captivity affects golden mantella frogs. So she um, actually studied golden mantella frogs in captivity in zoos such as Chester here in the UK, their behavior, their color, their vocalizations, their microbiomes, and did the same thing on wild ones in Madagascar. And so we're actually able to compare 
how captivity was affecting all these different characteristics of frogs in, on their behavior, welfare, and so on and so forth. So, you know, that's one study we've been doing. Um, we've also done a study looking at sound in zoos. So this started in Brazil, where I did a study looking at the effect of sound in a Brazilian zoo, uh, which we found that mainly sound in Brazilian zoos come from the public. And that's because in Brazil, um, they don't need enclosures with glass and heating systems and things like that because of the climate. So the animals generally don't have glass barriers and things like that. They're more exposed to the public. What we found when we did a study, this was work I did with uh, Marina Bonge, um, was that in the zoos here in the UK, is that the animals not so much hit by sound from the public, but from heating systems and from... Um, air conditioning systems and in fact some of these sounds can be really very very loud so um, one um, study we did we found that the sound inside the enclosure where the animal was was actually 85 decibels which is beyond the legal limit for example for humans to actually um, listen to so you wouldn't be allowed to be exposed to that without hearing protection so, and the other thing we've been working on recently is looking at sleep quality as a measure of animal welfare. And so this is, we've been doing this with giraffes. This is with Ivana Shork, who's a recently finished PhD student of mine. And so we've been investigating whether the number of times an animal wakes up at night and how broken up and fragmented its sleep is, whether that reflects what happened to it the day before in terms of its well-being. Now, the reason for this is that sleep is an easy behavior to automate in terms of capturing it by an automatic capturing video system. And so it would be a very good behavior for doing an automated analysis of the well-being of animals if we could show that there was a good link between sleep quality and well-being um, in these animals. Wonderful. That's really fascinating. And so are you also, you know, looking at using acoustic monitoring for animal welfare assessments just based on the sound or all, all also always combined with video or are you just also using sound alone? Um, well, we've been working on both um, for different reasons. Sound um, is very good because it can give it can pick up. Um, respiration it can pick up heart rate and things like that but it can also pick up eating it can pick up distress vocalizations it can pick up vocalizations when animals are happy so depending on the substrate the animal's walking on it might also be able to pick up things like you know um, locomotion patterns and things like that so there's a whole host of things and feeding behavior if you're using wearable technology that you can pick up using these kind of devices animals and there's quite a few um, commercial devices available on the market um, which already do a number of the things that i'm talking about they're mainly designed for dogs or cats but they could be adapted for other animals um, so and then 
the video systems are very interesting. There's a lot of work in the UK, particularly at the moment with farm animals and some with lab animals on automated assessment of animal welfare from video systems. So there's a system being produced um, on zebrafish from the University of Liverpool and the University of Bristol have a number of projects looking at farm animals and automated capture of their well-being from video systems. We've also been doing this with the giraffes and we've been doing this with laboratory dogs. The only thing I have to say with video systems is that the amount of data you produce is much, much greater. I mean, it's factors greater. And at the moment, we actually do have some software that can capture dog sleeping behavior automatically. So it can watch the tapes of dogs actually sleeping for us. So we don't have to do that and calculate um, sleep quality indices. But at the moment, this only runs on a supercomputer. And so at the moment, it, we've shown a proof of concept, but we haven't got it anywhere near to a level where, you know, an ordinary um, facility could actually use it because, you know, as I say, we've actually had to use a university supercomputer to be able to run the software. Sounds absolutely fascinating, though. And I think it's, again, such a, a good example of, you know, really looking across disciplines and you know all kinds of different technologies and how could we uh, try and test it and perhaps use it and, and, and use it in the future when it will become available if possible. So that's just really fascinating. So looking forward to following that work. And you know when it comes to like the lessons learned if you like with regards to animal welfare assessment work that you have done, um, what were some of the things that worked or were very difficult and you had to let go of them or maybe even, you know, unexpected discoveries? Can you share a little bit about uh, that, please? Yeah, I mean, always animal welfare assessments. What we're really ideally looking for is something that gives us a, a quick an accurate assessment of the well-being of animals. That's the kind of, you know, the holy grail that everybody wants. Um, but of course, you know, that that's quite difficult. So behavioral observations, you know, generally have to be very long term. Um, there's always a doubt about the interpretation of them. Um, other techniques such as looking at stress hormone levels, again, you know, there's problems with getting samples and things like that. So, you know, people have been looking for, you know, different kinds of um, ways to try and evaluate um, animal welfare and some are good in the short term some are good in medium term should some are good in long term so you know a short-term stressor would be the arrival of a keeper um, whereas a long-term stressor might be lots of background noise and picking them up you'd need to use different tools otherwise you wouldn't be able to pick up you know the fact that you know those kind of stressors have occurred to the animals so this is always one of the problems is you know whether you're talking about a short-term stressor or a long-term stressor that's negative towards the animal and you know whether we can assess them um, at the recently you know as I say what I've become personally more interested in is you know whether overall the animal has a good life because its welfare is going to fluctuate up and down and i think that's normal and i'm going to accept that then what i'm interested in myself at the moment more is did the animal have a good life overall and so we've been using recently um, telomere attrition to look at this which is something being used by a number of researchers so the telomeres are the ends of your chromosomes 
And when you're stressed, the ends of these chromosomes, they decrease very rapidly when your cells multiply. And so what happens is these ends are actually the protection of your chromosomes. They're a bit like the plastic on the end of your shoelace. Once that plastic's gone, then the lace no longer functions. Once the telomere is gone off the end of your chromosome, the chromosome dies and the cell dies. What happens is you get cell senescence and you get premature aging. So we've been looking at this with um, dogs in laboratories and other dogs, so like police dogs and other dogs. And what we found is that indeed, you know, animals, so dogs in a laboratory in Brazil under quite barren conditions have a lot of very premature aging. You know, they're biologically much older than they are chronologically. Now, the interesting thing was that we've also tested this by showing people pictures of dogs and looking at how long their chromosomes are. And people are able to look at a dog and go, that dog looks very old. And actually, the dog might not be very old, but it has a very short telomere. So what they're picking up is that the dog has aged very rapidly. So kind of one of my long-term hopes for a simple animal welfare kind of measurement is apparent age which is how old you look versus how old you really are. So in humans, this is very well known. So there's a lot of studies being done in the US about people under long-term financial stress. And um, people under long-term financial stress in the US look on average six years older than they really are when you ask people to guess their age. And that's because, you know, they are biologically aging much more rapidly because of the stress of the life that they're actually leading. And what that means is they're going to get all the diseases of old age much more rapidly, much more earlier in their lives. And therefore, the quality of their life is going to decrease. So at the moment, that's the kind of thing I'm interested in is looking at kind of these kind of lifelong markers of well-being rather than, you know, in the past, I looked much more at markers of, you know, how do animals respond to an environmental enrichment object or to the presence of a keeper or something like that. I've become much more interested in, you know, the cumulative life experience of the animal and whether that overall is a good experience or not. And one of the very surprising results that we got was in this laboratory we're working in Brazil. The conditions are very barren. Um, the animals have no toys. They're not interacted with by the staff, really. Um, we persuaded the staff to actually put in play sessions for the dogs. And so three times a week, the dogs get like a one, one and a half hour play session. And after the end of, after a year of doing this, we remeasured the dog's chromosomes and their telomeres and their telomeres had grown back. So we'd actually reverse the damage of the aging process just by introducing these play sessions for the dogs. I mean, um, this was kind of predicted in theory, but nobody had ever seen this before in practice. And it might have just been because the dogs were under such barren conditions, you know, that we were able to see it by just, you know, doing something as simple as giving them play sessions. So that was one of the really shocking things was, you know, how powerful something as simple as being able to play two or three times a week for an hour, an hour and a half actually can have on the well-being of a very intelligent animal like a dog. Yes, and, and that is so important, as you say, you know, of course, talking about the accumulative experiences, lifelong experiences of animals, and then also 
trying to look at, you know, can some of this be reversed? You know, did we know, did we not know that that was even possible? So, so important, all these types of stories and, and research, of course. And I'm curious also, when you talked about the people looking at the photos, these were people who were familiar with uh, the dogs themselves or dogs in general, or, you know, people who had who don't really have an interest in dogs because often you know some listening might know this others might not know this but in some research it's important that the people have prior experience and in some it isn't so i'm curious to know what was the state here so we used experts um, people who had a lot of experience with dogs and the other part of the research that I didn't mention that we did was we actually ran a competition at a, a computer science conference to get computer scientists to write an algorithm that could age the dogs. And what we actually found was that their algorithm was as good as the experts at aging the dogs. And so, and what we're talking about here is the apparent age of the dogs. So, you know, what that tells us is actually, I don't have to have a huge bank of, you know, experts available. I can actually write a computer algorithm that can tell me what age this dog should be. And then I compare it to its actual um, biological age, you know, how much it actually really is aging. And if there's a big mismatch, then it tells me that there's something going on that's quite wrong in terms of, you know, the cumulative life experiences of this dog. Amazing. All really, really interesting research. And, you know, you talked about, of course, the environment of animals, the social structures of animals, the importance of enriching activities, and also, you know, your example with the dog and the barren conditions, not having good or, you know, human-animal relationships, very few interactions. Can you talk to us a little bit about your thoughts on studying and understanding animal mental well-being? Yeah, I mean, definitely it's, it's a tricky thing to um, study the mental well-being of animals um, because of, you know, something we've already mentioned, which is, you know, individual variation. Um, we certainly know that um, in humans, you know, there's quite a strong genetic component um, to how people um, deal with um, adverse situations. Um, you know, in English, we often say, we talk about certain people and we say, oh, that person's bomb-proof, which means that nothing seems to affect them. You know, they're always really laid back and calm. And, um, you know, I've got a colleague at work who's actually like that. He's actually got a very ill daughter. And I don't think there's anybody else I know who could cope with what he copes with, but he's very lax and laid back. And, you know, I'm sure if we looked at his genes, we would find, you know, and this is what studies show, he has certain combinations of genes which allow him to be that way. And, you know, so he's just one of these fortunate people. So, you know, he doesn't suffer as much, um, at least not in the sense of maybe physiologically getting stressed or emotionally getting stressed as the majority of people, and, you know, and there's no reason for us to believe that that isn't the same in other animals. So, you know, there is going to be that component. Now, I would always say that, you know, if the animal is a pet or if it's a farm animal or if it's a laboratory animal, an animal shouldn't just be coping with its environment. You know, I would take, you know, 
um, John Coe's words and say an animal should be thriving in its environment. And so, you know, even though the animal might be, you know, very well designed and, you know, as an individual to actually cope with a lot of, you know, mental anguish, it shouldn't have to deal with that. Just because it can deal with it, you know, it shouldn't have to deal with it. In the same way, I would say that, you know, I wish my friend with his daughter didn't have to deal with what he has to deal with. Yeah. So I think that, you know, we need to be very careful about that. Um, the question in terms of, you know, um, mental well-being and suffering and things like that in animals is, you know, how severe is it? And again, you know, one individual might react in a very severe way to a particular situation, which to another individual is not such a severe situation. And, you know, this goes back to characterizing, you know, individual responses. I think the important thing today really is that we need to be focusing more on positive well-being. So what are the measures of positive well-being rather than, you know, going back to just measuring what is negative? You know, this kind of takes me back to what I was saying very earlier on today in that, you know, animal welfare back in the 1990s to me seemed to be very obsessed with measuring how poor welfare was rather than looking at how well an individual is doing. And I think that, you know, and that is much more challenging is to measure. And that's why people don't tend to measure it um, or think about it. But, you know, it is to me, the essential component today is really how do we measure when an animal is really, you know, doing well and thriving in its environment? Yes, absolutely. Really the, you know, importance of thriving, of being well, of experiencing, as you say, most of the time, you know, positive welfare states, not always, but, you know, at least having choices and control, you know, being able to make decisions, having agency, and, you know, really, you know, being able to be, you know, whoever you are, whatever you have evolved to do, and also, you know, you as an individual, those things are all so important. And, you know, I think also, especially now where, you know, WASA has the 2023 uh, goal that, you know, everybody should have um, from uh, associations to members should have animal welfare assessments in place. Uh, a lot of zoo associations and other organizations are putting out all kinds of tools that um, are, you know, either, you know, looking at the inputs that we are giving, the care that we are giving, or specific, you know, ways of looking and measuring animal welfare. Anything from, of course, what do we know from the biology, from the animal, uh, their environment, all those things to, you know, really the assessment of the individual. What type of tips do you have for people or organizations who, who want to do this welfare work? As you mentioned, you know, not, we don't all have a supercomputer. Uh, we have the skills of the person um, in-house to do all this. But, um, you know, what are some of the potential, you know, building blocks if they want to start? What should they have in place or what could they start on? And, and also, you know, in your long career, obviously you have learned a lot from, you know, the things that you have done. So what are potentially things to avoid or, you know, made, mistakes that are often made? Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest mistake that I see um, is that, you know, with organizations, say like zoos, is they think they should be using research tools to do assessments. 
And I don't think that that's appropriate because, you know, research tools are there for very specific reasons. And I'm not sure that that's, you know, a useful thing, you know, looking at, you know, so if I look at, you know, this current research with the telomere attrition, I'm not proposing that zoos look at telomere attrition. However, looking at photos of their animals and how rapidly they're aging, I could see as something that they could be doing. So I think it's looking for more practical tools. We know that increasingly that zoo staff are under time pressure. Um, we know that, you know, keepers and people like that are being given more and more work. So we need to be looking for more and more tools which allow us to automate. So hence, you know, I was talking about using um, audio tools or using video analysis and things like that. There's a lot of wearable technology these days. So all these tools that can alert us so that actually maybe we should spend a bit more time looking at this animal, this individual here is starting to show um, maybe some problems. So I think, you know, that's the way to, to really go. I really don't think that, you know, any labor intensive um, methods are really going to work because I just don't think zoo staff have the time to actually implement those methods in a way that's actually meaningful. And I think it's very false to think that a scientific tool that used by somebody like myself in my research is actually going to be a useful tool in a kind of day-to-day -day assessment. It needs to be something more practical um, than it's currently being used. You know, I've heard people talk about, oh yeah, let's take feces and look at, you know, cortisol levels every day and things like that, which all sounds great until you realize you need a laboratory that can actually test that and everything else. And it's not cheap and it's not as simple as you think to actually do these kind of things. So, you know, there really is a lot of mistakes that way. So I think it's looking for much more simple tools than maybe um, we're using at the, the moment and seeing, you know, whether some of those couldn't help us solve the problems or tools which can aut automate these kind of processes. So many zoos now for their zoo enclosures are using CCTV. So they're already filming their enclosures. So now with all this software, like I talked about the sleep quality software that we're working on, there is other software out there that can measure other things. These all might be able to give us an idea of how well individuals are actually dealing with their environment. And so, you know, keepers rather than trying to spend a few hours every day, maybe watching their animals could have a program that indicates to them there might be a problem with a certain animal and they need to look at the animal. And I think that is, you know, to me, the only sensible way forward because if you look at the number of animals that a zookeeper's got to look after, it just doesn't seem, you know, really feasible to me that, you know, they're going to be able to do that, um, you know, with the kind of science tools that I'm using in any kind of meaningful way. And so I really don't think that that is the way forward for them. I think it's these kind of automated solutions and more simplified solutions. Yes, and it's so important also when, you know, we are talking about collaborations, you've worked in zoos, I've worked in zoos and aquariums and, you know, really looking at what is the day like and how can we, you know, what is appropriate and what is meaningful, as you have been talking about also, and how can we take some of those aspects, the practical aspects and then use them or how can we, you know, take advantage, as you say, of CCTV or, you know, other um, tools that have been developed and adapt them to 
being able to use in zoos and aquariums where time is limited. And, and that's certainly something that on the practical animal welfare science platform we're trying to do is to look at what is the science out there and how can we, you know, look at perhaps decision trees or checklists or other tools that can be developed that you can actually use you know, on the on the floor with the animals on a day to day or on a regular whatever meaningful basis. So, as you say, so important to do that, uh, and to and otherwise to have those collaborations with people like yourselves or universities and other research facilities to do the the other research um, together. So, and you know, I'm so grateful you came to, onto the podcast today, and I would love to hear uh, one final story. Uh, of a practical change, because you've talked to us already about so many practical applications. Can you share one last success story, an aha moment of, you know, a change that you've been able to make for animals uh, to improve uh, their well-being? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, for me, the aha moment is to actually realize that the approach has to be proactive. We have to be avoiding problems not correcting problems. So, you know, the more we can think about what we can provide for animals in terms of allowing them to express their behavioral needs, the better. And so, you know, one of my aha moments in my PhD was, you know, this point where, you know, I was talking with my supervisor who's very much into measuring the well-being of the animals and then coming up with this idea of this foraging device for the pigs that I mentioned earlier as a way of, you know, giving the pigs an outlet for all this behavior so that, you know, the abnormal behavior that was very commonly seen in pigs in captivity could be avoided from ever occurring in the first place. And for me, that was the aha moment was realizing that, you know, as any good doctor will tell you, it's easier to avoid a problem than it is to cure a problem. You know, and so that's what I think that zoos and other places need to be um, really thinking about. I mean, we're seeing a number of problems now um, in zoo animals, such as obesity and things like that. And so we really need to ask ourselves, you know, how can we avoid this? And what, how did this actually come about? You know, why, how have we let this come about? Because really, we should be smart enough now to make sure that these kind of problems are not coming about. We should be avoiding problems. Admittedly, there are always things that can come up that we can't anticipate. I mean, look at the world today with the COVID, you know, this wasn't anticipated. But for a lot of the problems that we're seeing in terms of animal welfare, you know, I think we could have predicted them. And it's predicting what problems can come up and then making sure that we put in place, you know, measures so that we don't get those problems or we minimize, you know, the chance of, you know, problems occurring. And that for me has really got to be where we're going um, with, you know, animal welfare. Absolutely. I think you're so right. It, it really points to, you know, when we talk about, you know, animal behavior management, you know, if we would create environments where, you know, animals, that actually suit the animal's biology, the, the social life of the animals, that they can manage their own you know, behavior because obviously they have very well evolved to do so. But like you say, you know, being proactive, really looking ahead, what do we need here? How can we avoid things from happening? And really looking at the, you know, what are some of the, the, the symptoms that we have, like obesity, as you say, and where do they come from and trying to, you know, 
cure, as you say, the, the root cause of it or try to minimize it as much as possible, I think is so valuable. And as many of the points that you've made throughout the whole podcast and, you know, all the different aspects from, you know, sleep in giraffe and of course, you know, sound pollution and the, the impacts of anthropogenic sound, the importance of global collaborations and really looking interdisciplinary. You talked about the labs, the farms, you know, the dogs, the wild animals, but really this global collaboration and the important part of really focusing on, you know, the proactive side of it, thinking of the accumulative, the life experience of the animal and really taking advantage of all kinds of technologies and other tools that are out there to really to benefit the animal, to look at how can we make sure they have the best life possible and how can we solve some of the problems that they're facing, whether that's in captivity or in the wild. And I'm really, really grateful and glad that you came onto the podcast and I hope it's not gonna be the last time. Thank you so much for your wisdom and nuggets. And of course, we're gonna make sure to have the website. So if students or others want to learn more about your work or contact you, then they can do that uh, on the podcast page. So thank you again so much, Rob, for coming on and hopefully uh, talk to you another time. Thank you very much. Bye-bye.